Hey there, it's Glenn and Linda Dawson with Preparing Our Heart for Worship podcast. Did you miss us? We've just been on a trip out west to Las Vegas, Hoover Dam, and the Grand Canyon, and the Redstone Country of Sedona. Wow, what a trip. And we recorded it on video just for you to see. What an eventful week. We have been on a wonderful excursion with our church seniors, but it was not without problems. Yes, we missed flight connections in Atlanta when the airport was closed due to the weather, and then many of us were diverted across the country in different directions, all to make connections to Vegas, and we did that all night long. On the trip home, many of us contracted COVID. Believe me, we were too sick to get our podcast out when we got back. So instead of missing just one podcast, we missed two because of COVID. Yes, and this is our first video podcast, and there's a learning curve to that, too. Before we show the video of our trip, let's take a look at this week's song. Fairest Lord Jesus is a song of mystery. The author and the origin of the song are unknown. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God of man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor. Thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Fair are the meadows, fairer still the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. Jesus is fairer, Jesus is purer, who makes the woeful heart to sing. Fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight, and the twinkling starry host. Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines purer than all the heavenly hosts can boast. Beautiful Savior, Lord of all the nations, Son of God and the Son of Man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be thine. The song seems to have originated as a folk song in German and in other areas of Europe. Some historians believe the song may even date back to the 12th century when it was sung by German crusaders as they made their long, dangerous, and worrisome journey to the Holy Land. For this reason, it is referred to as the Crusaders' Hymn. Some historians theorize that the words originated from various sources, such as the Jesuit order, through Movanians during the Anti-Reformation purge, or from the followers of John Huss. The tune of Ferris Lord Jesus appeared in German as a folk song in 1842, but hymnologist Albert Edwards Bailey believes the original text first appeared in 1677. No one knows who translated the hymn into English. The hymn first appeared in American hymnals in the mid-19th century. The hymn is sometimes referred to as Beautiful Savior. In the 1850 publication, Church Chorals and Choir Studies, a notation states the hymn was sung by German knights on the way to Jerusalem. That may well be where the Crusaders' legend began. More than 1900 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of life. This man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He did not travel extensively. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. His relatives were inconspicuous 
and had neither training nor former education. In infancy he startled the king, in childhood he puzzled doctors, and in manhood he ruled the course of nature. He healed the multitudes without medicine, and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the country could not hold the books that had been written about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has, he has furnished the theme for more songs to all the songwriters combined. He never marshaled an army, and yet no leader ever had more volunteers. The names of the past proud statesmen, scientists, philosophers, and theologians have come and gone, but the name of this man abounds more and more. He stands on the highest pinnacle as the living Christ, both Lord and Savior. The living, this living Christ, according to the writer of the book of Hebrews, is superior, superior to the Old Testament priests, superior to Moses, superior to old sacrifice, and yes, even superior to the angels. Those of us who live where we have four seasons understand and delight in the end of winter when we can again enjoy the blooming garb of spring. We can revel in the sights, sound, and smells of the meadows, the woodlands, and the twinkie starry host. But one can easily delight in the creation and forget the Creator as in the familiar quotation, One is nearer the heart of God in a garden than anywhere else on earth. In reality, in reality, though, one is closer to the heart of God when one is in the company of a Christian-like person. And one is closest of all when he joined to this beautiful Savior. Best-known legend is that it was sung in the 12th century by German crusaders as they made their long, weary way to the Holy Land. Another and more credible account is that it was sung by followers of John Huss, who were driven out of Bohemia in 1620 in the Reformation Purge, in the Anti-Reformation Purge, who settled in what is now part of Poland. They had to keep their faith secret, yet they had a strong tradition of hymn singing. It is also listed as attributed to the German Jesuits, who first published it in their Munster Gisenbach in 1677. The words date back at least 15 years earlier, having been found in a manuscript dating back to 1662. There are several accounts as to the origin of the beautiful hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus. The Christian hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus, also known as Beautiful Savior, is a song that celebrates and appreciates Jesus Christ as the Savior of man. This hymn praises Jesus as the ruler of all nature, illustrating his divine sovereignty over creation as the Son of God. The melody of Ferris Lord Jesus, first a folk tune, then German texts were published originally in 1842 by Augusta Hoffman as beautiful as the most beautiful Lord Jesus. For over 300 years, Christians have sang the cherished, fairest Lord Jesus. How did this multilingual, how did this multi-generational hymn of devotion arrive in the present day? 
This hymn provides a classic example of the persistence of erroneous information. The hymn was copied from a Jesuit manuscript in 1662 and produced in Munster, Germany, where it consisted of six stanza. The first printed iteration of Ferris Lord Jesus appeared in 1657 in a Catholic handbook. The German text in five stanzas was paired with a tune of the same name. We have no record of authors for either text or tune. This tune was similar to one written in 1766 by Dutch Christian Ernest, whose title roughly translates to English, Let's Celebrate. Ferris Lord Jesus was later written in the United Methodist Hymnal through highly, though, though highly embellished. The hymn was published again, but with few changes. American composer Richard Willis included it in his collection of church chorals and choir studies in 1850. Willis publishes three stanzas of the German text alongside the English translation. Ferris Lord Jesus. Five years later, the influential Congregational Church hymnal called Plymouth Collection of Hymns and Tunes for use in the Christian congregation, including three stanzas of Ferris Lord Jesus, but it did not list the translator. However, the editor, Henry Beecher, a New York clergyman and brother to Herod Beecher Stowe, may have had a hand in the text translation. Later, more and more variants of Ferris Lord Jesus popped up in publications. Joseph Sice, a Lutheran pastor, served congregations in Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania, translated the text Beautiful Savior in the Sunday School book for the use of evangelical Lutheran congregations, published in 1873. On the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, the translation Ferris Lord Jesus with the old tune called Beautiful Savior that is still the ensemble's signature piece. Ferris Lord Jesus appeared in the Canadian Angelical, the Book of Common Praise in 1938 with the tune Crusader's Hymn, harmonized by Canadian composer James Hopkirk. The Epistle, the Episcopal Hymn, no, the Episcopal Hymnal of 1982 published Ferris Lord Jesus to the tune Crusader's Hymn, renaming the tune to St. Elizabeth. Recently, many hymnal committees have abandoned the tr traditional tune name due to the distaste for the period of, of Christian history known as the Crusades. The Crusades were once revered as missionary triumphs, but are now viewed as blight in Christian uh, reputation. Due to the Crusades, Israelites suffered mass death and religious persecution for years on end. While many hymnals that list an alternate tune names, some hymnals, mo some modern hymnals like Glory to God, the Presbyterian Hymnal, published in 2013, retain the traditional name Crusaders Hymns, perhaps for the sake of historical consistency and clarity. This takes us to modern day. Multiple translations and tunes currently circulate. About 60% of hymnals 
use various Lord Jesus, while 15% use Beautiful Savior. Another 25% use other translations. Looking more closely at the text, the first stanza establishes Jesus' supremacy over the natural created order. Jesus is identified as both from God and Son of Man, a reference commonly understood as indicating Christ's two natures, divine and human. Scholars find the origins of the concept in Daniel 7 with various New Testament references such as Mark 10.45. The Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve and give his life to redeem many people. Christ often refers to himself as Son of Man. The remainder of the stanza makes Son of God and Son of Man the object of adoration. My soul's glory, joy, and crown. The second stanza extorts the beauty of the natural created order, such as the meadows and woodland, contrasting this natural beauty with that of Jesus, who is fairer and purer, concluding with a powerful metaphor, Jesus makes the woeful heart to sing. The third stanza lift our eyes to, to the heavens, the sun, moon, and stars, Again, a comparison is that Jesus outshines the brightest lights in heaven and is purer than all the, than all the angels of heaven. The final stanza echoes the first, concluding with the feeling of a doxology, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be thine. What could be more beautiful than meadows in springtime, sunbeams, or twinkling stars? Jesus, our ruler of all nature, he shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Glenn, play this beautiful song, Fairest Lord Jesus, on the clarinet. Our visit out west this week reminded us, as we look across his awesome creation and realize the vastness of his creation power and reflected on his majesty and greatness, what an awesome God we serve. And there it was. And it was so. And the one who created all we could see breathed life into our bodies, an everlasting living soul. We are his creation.
If we were to ask fellow Christians, how old is the earth? Most would have a very sure opinion and would answer six to 10,000 years old and that the earth was created during the week as described in the Bible. Others will tell you with just as much assurance that the earth is 3.5 billion years as they learned in school. That's not a minor difference. We even find this confusion within our conservative churches, and there is the same division of opinions within the ranks of the few Christian geologists. With all this information, it can be confusing. The age of the earth is not only a biblical question, it's also a scientific question. Unfortunately, neither Christian, conservative, or Old Testament scholars, nor Christian scientists are in universal agreement. We're, we are bombarded with a broad spectrum of issues that I'm going not going to try to argue with today. I just want to talk about the biblical view of the question, move on to geology, the flood, and the Grand Canyon. Both the young earth and the old earth Christian position agree with the scriptures in Genesis. The difference is a matter of interpretation. Well-known young earth con- creationist from the Institute for Creation Research interpret the days of Genesis 1 as literal 24-hour days. The genealogy of Genesis 5 and 11 are consecutive or nearly consecutive generations, and the flood is a universal catastrophe event. This leaves little room for much more than 10,000 years as the true age of the earth. Old earth creationists believe that the days of Genesis as a long period of time, perhaps even millions of years. In this case, Genesis 1 would describe God's creation taking a long period of time. God is doing the work, and it's certainly a miracle, but it takes a lot longer than seven days. The flood of Noah is seen as a local event with a little impact on worldwide geology. We believe in the biblical, historical, literal interpretation of 24 hours a day and in a recent past. The testimony of science, God's natural revelation, does in fact correlate with this view. The earth has many layers of sediments, thousands of feet thick. How could one year-long catastrophe account for all this sediment? The answers may surprise you. The Grand Canyon is almost 300 miles long, a mile deep, and 4 to 12 miles across. Our first view of the canyon was an awesome experience. You truly must see it to believe it. Before my youngest son passed, he took a trip out here, and he saw the Grand Canyon. When he came home, he said, Dad, there's no words can describe it. You just have to see it. As I stood on the Grand Canyon rim... I had to say, Rodney, you're so right. Words do not do this justice. God has done something here that made a statement to us. I was awestruck. There was a six-day geology hike into the canyon with the Institute for Creation Research, a young earth creationist organization. They believed that the layers of rock in the Grand Canyon were primarily formed during Noah's flood about 
5,000 years ago. Most geologists, including Christian old creationists, believe that the strata were laid down over hundreds of millions of years. The group making the hike was a scientific group looking for the sudden appearance of fossils, the complexity of the earliest canyon fossils such as trilobites, the age of the Earth's magnetic fields, the role of continental drift in the onset of the flood. Where does the Ice Age fit into a young Earth model? Water canopy theories, carbon-14 dating, and the dating of the Grand Canyon rock layers derived from ancient lava flows. They examined many evidence for rapid formation of rock layers, which is essential to the young Earth model. They spent nearly two hours at the Grand Canyon unconformity between the Tepiat sandstone, which is dated to about 500 mil million years old, and the Hakatat shale, which is dated about 1.5 billion years old. These two formations were formed nearly a billion years apart, yet one lies right on top of the other. Nearly a billion years is missing between them. These deep canyons are the result of Noah's flood and the canyon carved soon afterwards. The canyon stands as a mighty testimony to God's power, judgment, and grace. Even if that were not the case, what a wonderful world our Lord has sculpted for us to inhabit. His love is bigger than we can grasp, bigger, infinite bigger than even the Grand Canyon. One of the more obvious formations of the Grand Canyon is the Coconillo sandstone. This prominent feature is found only a few hundred feet below the rim of the canyon and forms one of the many cliffs in the canyon. Its distinctively yellow cream color makes it look like a thick layer of icing between cake layers. Evolutionary geologists have described this sandstone as originating from an ancient desert. Remnants of sandstones can be seen in many outcrops of the formation in a phenomenon called cross-bedding. There are many footprints found in this sandstone that have been interpreted as lizards scurrying across the desert. These footprints might pose a major challenge to the young earth geologists who need to explain this formation in the context of Noah's flood. Since there are many flood-associated layers, both above and below the sandstone. There is no time for a desert to form in the middle of Noah's flood. Recent investigations, however, have revealed that the cross-bedding due to underwater sand dunes and some footprints are actually explained by amphibians moving across the sandy bottom shallow water. Perhaps this formation can be explained by sand deposits underwater. The group observed the location where the time gap between the two layers is estimated to be one billion years. It is very unusual, even for evolutionary geology, for two layers from periods so far apart, in this case one billion years, to be right on top of one another. It is hard to imagine that no sediments were deposited in this region for over a billion years.
Evolutionary geologists believe that the upper sandstone was deposited over thousands, hundreds of thousands of years in a marine environment. However, the group observed large rocks and boulders from a neighboring formation mixed into the bottom few feet of the Tapiot sandstone. This indicates tremendous wave violence capable of tearing off these large rocks and transporting them over a mile before being buried. This surely fits the description of a flood rather than a slow deposition, and it was laid down in a great cataclysm uh, are necessary elements for a young earth flood geology scenario for the Grand Canyon. Perhaps one of the most interesting questions about the Grand Canyon is how it was cut out of rocks in the first place. The answer to this question has a lot to do with how old the canyon is supposed to be. The puzzling factor about the Grand Canyon is that Colorado cuts through the uplifted region called the Kabub Upwrap. Normally, a river would be expected to flow toward the lower level, but the Colorado has cut through an elevated region rather than the again going around it. The explanation you will still find in the natural park literature is that the Colorado River began to cut into the Grand Canyon as much as 70 million years ago before the region was lifted up. As the uplift occurred, the Colorado maintained its level by cutting through the rock layers as they were lifted up. Thus, the Grand Canyon was cut slowly over 70 million years. In recent years, however, evolutionary geologists as well as old earth conservatives have abandoned this scenario because it just isn't supported by the evidence. A major reason is, even at the present rate of erosion in the Grand Canyon, it would take as little as 71,000 years to erode that mount of rock currently missing from the Grand Canyon. Also, all of the sediment that would have been eroded during the 70 million years has not been located. And lastly, evolution's own radiometric dates of some of the surrounding foundations indicate the Colorado River has been in its present location for less than 5 million years. The old earth creationists believe that the Grand Canyon strata were formed over hundreds of millions of years, that the canyon itself was carved out in less than five million years. Young Earth creationists, on the other hand, believe that the strata of the canyon were formed as a result of Noah's flood and that the canyon was carved out catastrophically less than 5,000 years ago. A critical question to ask is how can we know how old the rocks in the Grand Canyon really are? The usual solution is to date the rocks by radiometric dating methods, which is supposed to be capable of dating rocks billions of years old. Rocks of volcanic origin are the best ones to use during uh, dating rocks in this way. Since radiometric elements are plentiful in them, the Grand Canyon has volcanic rocks near the bottom and at the top. The scientific group has been involved in a project over the last several years to date these volcanic rocks. Their result not only called into question the age of the Grand Canyon, but also the reliability of radiometric dating. The youngest rocks in the Grand Canyon are recognized by all to be volcanic rocks, 
in the western Grand Canyon that flowed from the top and into the canyon. The oldest rocks have been dated are volcanic rocks called the Cardiasa basalt, a Precambria formation near the bottom of the canyon. The Rubidium steronium method, however, has dated the Cardassium basalt at one billion years at the lava flow on top of the canyon in 1.3 billion years. That's clearly impossible. Rocks at the bottom of the rock are 300 million years younger than the very recent rocks which are on the top of the canyon. These dates were obtained by the scientific form samples and they sent to several independent dating labs. Something is amiss either in the interpretation of the rocks, the dating methods, or both. As we have seen, our scientists have come a long way in showing that many of the Grand Canyon strata could have formed rapidly, that erosion of the canyon by the Colorado River has not been going on for tens of millions of years, and that there are significant problems with the dating of the canyon. However, there are significant questions that remain to be answered if the young earth model is to be taken seriously by old earth geologists. For example, why are there no vertebrates among the fossils of the ocean floor communities of the Grand Canyon strata when vertebrates inhabit today's ocean floors? How did many kinds of sediment in the Grand Canyon find their way to North Arizona as a result of the catastrophe and become so neatly fitted with a little mixing. The creation was a real historical event. Adam and Eve were real people, and the flood of Noah was real history as well. But finding the physical dates of these events can be tricky business. We need to encourage scientific investigation from both a young and old earth perspective, because the testimony of God's word and his revelation from nature will ultimately be in harmony. It may just be hard to discern what that harmony is right now. Remember, this wonderful Savior provided a way, the only way, to heaven. He came, he died, and he suffered your hell on the cross as payment for your sin. He did this for you. How can we ignore such a great a salvation as this as a gift? He has paid for this with his own blood. He so much wants you to accept his gift. As he waits, his heart begs you to turn from your sin and destruction. My Christian friend, let your heart drift with me prayerfully. For those who need Jesus, Holy Spirit, come and convict our hearts and move across this land with great conviction. We love it when you visit it's so good to hear from old friends and new friends, too. And, of course, we enjoy talking about the old-time hymns, the authors and events, related to the writing of their songs. We hope you've been informed and enjoyed yourselves. Our music has been distributed to the web. You can hear it by searching the web for the music of Glenn Dawson. Go over to YouTube and search for us. 
When you get there, punch the like button and the subscribe button. Partner with YouTube, we need 4,000 watch hours in 12 months and 1,000 subscribers. We appreciate that so much when you go over there and subscribe and help us get on with our channel. Our program is part of the Wind Austin Evangelistic Association. We're a nonprofit organization dedicated to sharing Jesus with everyone. We enjoy hearing from you, and you can write to us on the platform, or you can go to our webpage, which is duly completed, and it's over at glendawsonea.com. G L E N N D A W S O N E A.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week on Preparing Our Hearts for Worship. God, God be, be with, with you. you. Goodbye, Goodbye from, from now. now.